morning. If you're first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to get one, grab one, and read it. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, please, please keep that, take it, and read it. Um, I'll pray for us, and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, uh, we're not worthy uh, to be uh, here. We're not worthy to be yours, uh, but we come in that humility knowing that you have made us yours. You have given us your love. You have given us your grace. You have made us your own, and that anything we have to boast in, we have because of you, and, and that the only reason we have breath in our lungs and food on the table is you. The only reason we know the truth of your scripture and of, uh, of your reality and your gospel is you. And so I pray today, God, that you would just continue to lavish your grace and your mercy on us today as we open your word and we hear from your spirit and we hear from your word and that we grow in an appreciation for you. We grow in a love of you and we grow in a love of each other. And as we even kind of get to a difficult and very practical text, Lord Jesus, that you would guide me through it, that it wouldn't just be about the things we do, but the things we do because you've loved us first. And so, Jesus, help me and guide me as we get into the text, and help us to just see you clear because of it. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, starting in 23, uh, this is a very practical text. text. Uh, Paul's going to be talking about how to deal with conflict within Christian community uh, and how to do that, but it's very important for us. There, there are those of us, and you might be one of these two people, or maybe not, uh, there are those of us who sometimes really like the theological text. By theological text, I mean, you really want to dig into Romans 3, and you want to, you want to think through these big and heady and weighty cosmic issues. Uh, those are good things to do. Those are wonderful things to meditate on, uh, and our, our, the truth of God is so wonderful and amazing because of it. Uh, but, and, uh, or maybe but rather, some of us really prefer the practical text. Well, well just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Uh, just tell me what I need to do, and I'll just do those things. I, I want to love people. Tell me how to love people. I, I want to know God. Uh, just tell me how to do my devotional. Just give me the practicals. Give me the basics. Give me the meat and potatoes. And I think the thing that if we're not careful that we miss is that you can't actually separate those two things, uh, that so much of our life is based on the cosmic, wondrous reality that Jesus Christ is God himself, and that God entered into human history, and that he's fully God, and that he's fully man, uh, and that he died to atone for all of our sin, and he, and he came to save sinners, and he came to give grace, and he, and he rose from the dead, and that has cosmic implications because he's putting the whole universe back the way it's supposed to be, these big, giant, amazing theological truths that then play out into how you love your spouse, how you love your friends, how you love your neighbors, how you uh, take care of your kids, how you, how, you, how you interact with someone. I mean, this truth should change how you interact with a checker at the grocery store when you leave here. You should show them dignity and respect and honor uh, at the grocery store, at the checkout line, as they're checking your stuff out because you're saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. The, the orthodoxy, the, the theology, the right things we think, the orthodoxy, produces orthopraxy, a right practice, a right life, right? The, the, the truth of Jesus affects how we love God and love others. And, and the practical and the theological come together as we understand orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And Paul here is dealing with this conflict. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, which if you haven't, that's fine. We'll explain it. But if you've read 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians has this church that's just in this massive conflict. And he's actually following up on one of these pretty serious conflicts here in chapter 2 as we get into it. Uh, he, I think he's following up on a, on a pretty serious conflict, which if you're 
checking it, it'll be 1 Corinthians 5, the guy who's dating the gal that was married to his dad. Um, so it's a pretty serious conflict. It's a pretty serious problem. And I think this is him kind of putting the pieces back together for this church. But what we need to see is that the grace and the truth of the gospel come together, that the, that the truth of the theology and the practical outworking will come together, the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy come together. And we want to see that happen in our own lives more and more and more, not just in conflict. And, you know, frankly, if you're a human being living on planet Earth, you're probably going to have some conflict with some people at some point in time. It's called interpersonal communication, right? But we need to approach it from the gospel. But not just that. We, we take this lens and we see how we do that with other areas of our life. So here we are in verse 23 of chapter 1. But I call God to witness against me. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul's got a problem. People don't think he's legit. And so now, as he's bringing in uh, the reasons why he's legitimately an apostle and he's legitimately the guy who planted their church and legitimately a guy they should listen to, he calls to the witness stand God, which takes a level of confidence and boldness in your case, by the way. Uh, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that are refrained from coming to Corinth. Now, one of the things they've said is that he wrote 1 Corinthians and probably a letter that came before that, which we don't have, but he references it in 1 Corinthians. And, and people are saying, oh, Paul, he's so, he, he'll send that really strong letter, but then when he shows up, he's kind of a wimp, or he's not eloquent, or he's not standing up against, oh, he's saying hard things because he's sending a letter. He'll send the nasty email, but he won't say it to you face to face, right? This is not uncommon in our own context. By the way, when you send someone an email, consider that in 2016, we treat an email like a real conversation. So just like you want to be kind with someone in your speech, be kind with someone in your email, just for the record. Because of the gospel, of course. But I call God to witness against me. Uh, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. I wrote it to you in a letter because I didn't want to have to tell you face to face because I wanted, well, I'll explain actually, I'll let him explain himself. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. So that letter I wrote that was very serious was to build you up. And here he'll explain it even further. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to come to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? He's going to explain I wrote you the letter to deal with the hard stuff that we had to deal with so we could deal with that first so next time I saw you, we wouldn't have to deal with the nonsense and we could just hang out and have a good time. Uh, but the one whom I have pained, oh, pardon me, who is there to make me glad but the one who I have pained? So if I come and I say sad things to you and it causes everyone to be bummed out, everyone's going to be bummed out in layman's terms. That's what Paul's up to. And I wrote as I did, so when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be with, uh, will, joy would be the joy of all of you. He's saying, I'm going to send you this letter. You're going to know the truth. You're going to fix what's wrong. And when I show up, we'll just encourage each other. We'll just do what churches are really supposed to do. At our best, at our best moments, as a community of faith, we come together and we say the truth of who Jesus is to one another and we build each other up in the faith of the gospel. That doesn't mean we don't cry together. That doesn't mean there's not conflict. That doesn't mean people don't call each other out from time to time. It doesn't mean any of those things, but it means at our best, when things are our best, we come together to worship Jesus, to love God and love one another, right? 
That's the best community. When you walk out of a community group, you had a community group, you ate your rice and beans, and what happened? People talked about Jesus and encouraged each other in the faith, and, and everyone walks out feeling that, feeling that truth. So here we go. Verse 4. For I wrote to you, now listen to this, this is very important. This is very important for the flow of the letter, for the flow of everything we're going to talk about today. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. It's easy for us because we do more letters now in 2016 than we did even, you know, I remember in high school I didn't write letters and I didn't write emails. I just talked on the phone to my friends. This might actually be more relevant to us now in the sense that we're actually more accustomed to letter writing because of social media and, and whatnot. The problem with getting an email especially if someone writes really bad emails. Uh, I had to learn this the hard way. It turns out all my emails were mean for many years. Back about a decade ago, I didn't know how to write like a nice email. I thought it was just a, a thing. I'm punching out some letters, and don't worry if it's in all capitals, and there's a few exclamation points. Don't worry about it. But when you read that, right, why is this guy, I mean, it's, it's almost silly, right? And, and we, sometimes when we stop and actually pause, the absurdity of our own age gets to us. All caps means I'm yelling at you, I guess. That's what we're doing. That's our etiquette. Okay, I won't use all caps then. I'm not, I'm not trying to yell. But when this letter comes, when 1 Corinthians comes, or this letter comes, people can cast it in a couple lights, right? They could cast it in a very gracious light and say, look, Paul really loves us. And he loves us enough to say hard things to us. Or they could look at it and say, look at Paul, what an unkind jerk he must be to say these things to us, right? Just, just like when someone sends you a letter or sends you an email? Uh, you know, do you give them the benefit of the doubt? Do you say, you know, this is my husband and he loves me, so I'm assuming this is a good email? Or do you say, oh, why do you say it that way? Well, this is my best friend from kindergarten. Of course she didn't mean that when she sent that email. You can read it in two ways, right? And so that's the hard part about written communication because the person's not there. You can't interact. You can't get their voice tone. Apparently, Paul's writing this letter crying. He's in anguish. He knows he has hard things to say to these people. Uh, again, the, the situation is this. There's a guy in their church who is either dating or courting or going to marry a gal that his dad was married to. From 1 Corinthians, it seems likely there's like a fiscal thing going on there. She's probably got something connected with the inheritance. There's, there's all kinds of different theories because we're missing some of that information but, but what we know is this guy's doing this thing he shouldn't do by dating his stepmom, right? And Paul in 1 Corinthians very clearly says, don't do that. Stop that and tell him to knock it off. We don't do that. And he, he says that this is an immorality that's not even known to the pagans to date your stepmom. Don't, don't do that. Um, but you can take the tone a couple of ways, right? He's saying he's, he's crying and he, he's got anguish. Like, likewise, uh, you know, when you know a Christian friend or a Christian family member is, is sinning, right? they're walking in sin, they're walking away contrary to God. And I'm, I'm talking, and just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm talking about Christian people here. I'm not talking about non-Christian people. Paul's response to non-Christian people, yeah, of course you don't sit around telling non-Christian people to start behaving like Christians because they're not Christians. And if you wanted to get away from people like that, you'd have to get on a spaceship, though Paul doesn't know about spaceships yet, but he kind of talks about it. He says, you have to leave the world, right? So yeah, you've got... You know, your family member, your best friend, your neighbor, they don't love Jesus and they don't act like Christians. So do you spend your time telling them to knock it off? No, of course not. You spend your time telling them about Jesus. But, you know, you're not surprised. 
You're not surprised when they're doing something contrary to the truth of the gospel because they don't know Jesus and they're acting contrary to the gospel. And you're surprised? It's, and it's not to say that they can like sin against you and you know light your lawn on fire. You can go to your neighbor and say, I think you lit my lawn on fire. Can we talk about replacing my lawn, please? That's not wrong, right? But you wouldn't say, hey, I think you were, you know, I think you've got an, you know, an alcohol issue here. Like you're, you know, you don't say you're a Christian. You know, you just don't have that. You don't have, you have this addiction thing we need. You don't have that. You've been, you know, you don't, you just don't have that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't deal with neighbor stuff like lighting the person's lawn on fire. Yes, we need to receive my lawn or whatever we're going to do here. But, but the Christian stuff, our aim is not to regulate people's morality. Our aim is for people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and love him. Okay. So here we are. Paul has these tears and this agony And it's really important for us to see that there's a connection between the grace that Paul's trying to approach this with and wants to see extended to this person who is in sin and the truth that he's upholding, that they're in sin, that they're doing something contrary to the gospel. And this this is very simple in our own lives. And I'm not talking about ordinary stuff, like your friend said something kind of curt to you and you didn't really like the way they talked to you that one time. I'm talking about stuff that's obvious. And, And how obvious? Well, the Bible says this, and you're doing this. And you say you love Jesus and want to obey his commandments. And so you go to your friend and say, this is what the Bible says, and this is what you're doing, and they're different, and I love you. Now, if you wake up in the morning really excited to have that coffee meeting, and you say to yourself, I'm going to get that dude so good today, I am going to really hand it to him. You are not ready for that meeting. And you should probably take the plank, which I'm going to call it a plank, not just a speck. You got some stuff to deal with with yourself, with the Lord, before you can have that meeting with them. That's why Jesus says, you know, remove the speck from your own eye and take the plank out of your own eye. Now, we love to misquote that and say, well, you need to deal with the plank in your own eye. You're absolutely correct when you say that. But what does Jesus say? First, remove the speck from your own eye. Then you can help them take the plank out of your own eye. It's not that we don't ever help other people take the plank out of their own eye. It's not what he says at all. At all. He's saying you got to deal with you first. You got to deal with your problems with Jesus. You got to deal with your obvious and blatant sin first, and then you can help other people. And by the way, that is an ongoing process. You realize I've got that speck out. Oh, there's another one. Dang. Okay. But, anyways, I, I think this is very important for us to just hear it again and then understand kind of how, how people are doing weird things with the gospel. Now listen, for I wrote to you out of much uh, affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. And even listen to what he says, not to cause you pain. He knows he's going to bum them out. If you've ever been called out by a loving, kind, and gracious Christian friend, it is not the best day ever. It's actually pretty painful. When you, when you hear someone say, this is what the Bible says, and this is what you're doing, and they're different, and you realize you're absolutely right, and I do need to, I need to stop. Thank you. You can say thank you, and you can know how much they love you, but it's not, it's not fun. You don't think, I'm going to go get cappuccinos with my friends. I'm really going to cheer them up when I call them out on this thing that's really painful and hard to deal with, right? But we do it. Why? Because we actually love people. Right? We want to see people grow in the gospel and move towards Jesus. And so he says this, though, uh, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. 
he actually loved them enough to call them out. Uh, sometimes I think we're like, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the mercy guy. I don't, I don't call people out on their stuff. No, you're not the mercy guy. <laughs> you're very unloving. You're very cold. You're very unkind. And you care more about what they think about you than them loving Jesus. You're actually concerned about you, not them. Paul's concerned about them, and he knows it's going to bum them out. But he does it anyways. Why? Because he loves them. Now, we have to be careful. Right now, I think in our society, there's sort of three things that are happening, uh, three kind of voices I hear uh, in in referring to to this orthodoxy idea. Uh, One are those who are completely outside of the church, and they, they have a vague sense of what the Bible may or may not say, specifically the Gospels, what Jesus may or may not have said. And they present this argument as if they actually understand our faith and the truth of the Gospel more than we do. And they present it like, well, if you guys, if you guys really understood the Bible, if you really understood this Jesus guy, you understand that Jesus ate with tax collectors and he ate with sinners and he just accepted everybody just as they were in everything, all the time. Everybody can do whatever they want to do. By the way, if you live with that ethos in your life and in your house, and you invite people into your home, and you just say, you do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, it will not go well for you unless you're very selective with the people you invite in. But if you're just indiscriminate inviting people and say, you just behave however you want to behave in my house, it won't go well for you, right? We, we know that when we kind of follow that thinking and that logic down, just a couple of steps. We more have a thing where we'd almost say, you do whatever you want to do, just don't do it at my house. Don't do it in my, I don't care, just not in my backyard. Right? That's, we love that idea. Not in my backyard. You while out, but, you know, you while out in Oregon, right? Don't while out in Seattle. While out somewhere else. Now, but this is really important because it, it, it sounds really smart and it sounds really knowledgeable. And it's actually, you know, People like ethicists and philosophers and PhDs who make this argument. If Christians really followed a Christian ethic, it would look like this. And they actually don't understand the Bible, and they don't understand the gospel, and they don't understand that Jesus meets with tax sinners and collectors, and tax collectors and sinners, and legalists and Pharisees and scribes. And you know what they do? They change. They find liberation in the gospel. They find freedom from sin. They find freedom from legalism. And their freedom is in leaving their sin behind and following Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't just hang out with them. He calls them to himself. But there's this sort of voice. I I read in op-eds in the Washington Post and the New York Times. uh, You you have these ethicists and philosophers and things saying, no, no, if these guys really understood the, the, the truth of Christianity, this is how they'd live. And you look at it and you say, but that thing you're talking about doesn't resemble the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't. But they, they kind of emphasize, well, you guys are so concerned about the truth that you miss the grace. They might not quite phrase it that way, but that's what they're after. They, they miss. You guys miss it. You're so about truth and being right about stuff, you're not just, you're not just living in that truth. And, and I think what they miss there is that when we're actually living in the truth, right, you just take things like, well, if you guys understood this, you'd be more accepting. But the amazing thing about the gospel is I understand the God of the universe entered into human history, and died in my place, in my sin, to accept me, to take me into his family, more than I could possibly imagine, and not on any of my merits at all. So that means if that gospel's coming alive in my life, people that are different than me are people I should welcome into my life, that I should sit and eat with, that I should know, that I should love, that I should be very, very, very gracious to. 
That doesn't mean I acquiesce. That doesn't mean I act like them. But it means that in my life, I can love them, I can serve them, and I can treat them with dignity and honor and respect in a radical way. Where for me to treat them with honor and dignity and respect, they don't have to act like me. We live in a time and a place where everybody wants everybody to be uh, sort of homogenous and act the same and, and, and be the same and think the same. And in fact, the gospel actually allows me to be friends with people who are radically different than me who even hold views of reality that are like offensive to me, that, that are contrary to enemies of God. Why? Because I was an enemy of God. And he's welcomed me in. And I think oftentimes this sort of op-ed mentality that says, well, if Christians just listen to Jesus more, everything would be better, are A, people who haven't really read the Bible, for starters. And secondly, I'm going to go so far and say, I think a lot of these people don't actually know any Christians. Because when I held that exact same view and made those exact same claims, you know how many evangelical Bible-believing Christians were in my life in a real substantial series? I knew some. I knew awesome ones, in fact. But were like people I would, be, I would be willing to hang out with and not be rude to long enough to listen to them? None. It's easy to set up a caricature when you don't know anybody who believes the thing you're setting up a caricature against. It's easy to say all Christians are like this, when you don't have any evangelical Bible-believing Christians in your life. And friends, this is Seattle, you know. There's not a plethora of those of us who fit that Bible-believing evangelical marker, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, right? But we all have friends. And often, I mean, I hear it from you guys all the time, and I see it in my own life. Well, if all Christians were like you, then everything would be great. Seem to love everybody. So it's like, well, maybe if you knew other Christians, you'd find out I'm not the only one. Just saying. I'm not a tigger. I'm something else. And I read too many kids' books, it turns out, when you just randomly drop. Cultural reference. There we go. Uh, the other thing is, is that I, I think the other voice that's kind of throws the darts at us, so to speak, is, and I'm not using this as a uh, political label. I'm using this as a theological label. And I'm, this is a self-identifier, too. Just if you're not familiar with that, these are not derogatory. Uh, liberal Protestant Christianity um, sort of the old-timey mainline denominations. This is, these are their self-identifiers uh, who have kind of said, you know, they kind of had a different person. You know, no Christians follow all of the Bible. So we need to pick and choose what's good out of here and get rid of the rest. And it sounds really evolved and sophisticated when you say that, but you know who really likes that kind of, that kind of uh, message are those who don't listen to the Bible at all. Because, by the way, if I believe that you should only pick and choose from this book because it's just written by people or it's just a book, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be doing something else on Sunday morning. But this is how the all-powerful God of the universe has spoken to us and through his Son, and we believe this word, and we know that it's the truth. But that kind of message says, basically, you don't have to do anything that's going to make you uncomfortable. You never have to call anybody out on anything. You don't have to deal with any of these practicals. And then there's the third voice in there, and I, and I think it's also very important to pay attention to. Uh, and that's the people who, and I've heard it phrased it this way. Well, you know, Jesus came in grace and truth. And these are, and I'm speaking here about people who would consider themselves to be Bible-believing Christian folk. Well, you know, Jesus came in grace and truth, and I think I just need to focus on grace more. And when they say that, they mean, I'm not going to do anything that's going to make me or anybody else uncomfortable. I'm going to be merciful to everybody, which isn't merciful at all, right? If you see somebody walking in sin, and you know they love Jesus and believe the Bible, and you don't love them enough to say, hey, man, this is what the Bible says, and this is what you're doing, they're different. That's not mercy. That's the love of comfort. 
please don't call it mercy. It's the love of comfort. Paul goes on. And we'll kind of unfurl this from here, okay? Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely. He's going to try to make sure he knows I'm going to be loving here. He's trying to, it's the manner in which he's speaking here to you, all of you. So what Paul's saying is, I'm writing you guys a letter from the outside because I love you and I'm, I'm talking to you. And you say, well, Paul's being a jerk to us. He's saying we shouldn't be sinning against Jesus all the time. No, the conflict's in here. The conflict's in your church. If someone's caused you problems from having such overt and obvious sin that the community actually needs to talk to them about it, uh, and that gives you the tears and the, the stomach ache and, and whatever because you know that you're the first guy to go talk to him in the coffee meeting and you've got the stomach ache and you can't sleep, well, that's not causing Paul the pain. That's causing the church the pain. It's tearing apart the church. When there are people walking in a church community in overt and obvious sin, it does not just hurt that one person. It hurts everybody. You know, we have this mentality, again, we, have this, we love autonomy and we love our own thinking. And we so are, are so quick to point and say, well, you know, as long as whatever they do doesn't hurt anybody else, it doesn't matter. That view is so individualistic and so outside of the idea of community that it misses the fact that when we do things like that, we hurt everybody. When people are in over and obvious, I'm not talking about normal sanctification sin, I'm talking about hard horrible, unrepentance, and that, that causes rifts in the whole community, causes all kinds of issues. He goes on. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now that's about as strong as language as you're going to see, and we'll explain it here in a second. So you, but listen, let's get to the good news before we talk about the bad news. You want the good news first, the bad news first. Let's do the good news. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the Bible has a very simple way to deal with this stuff. When someone's an obvious, overt sin that's contrary to the gospel, what we do is we go to them slowly and patiently. We start one person goes and says, hey, man, I love you. This is what the Bible says, and this is what you're doing, and they're different. Please stop. And they say, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to keep doing whatever I'm going to do. I don't care that I'm taking uh, my grocery budget and I'm gambling with it and my kids are hungry. It'll be fine. We'll have the big payoff. It doesn't matter. And so then two people come and say, Bob, I don't know one's named Bob in here today. I was trying to use names that no one has because I'm not talking about any of you, right? Bobby Joe, hey, man, this is what you're doing and this is what the Bible says and they're different and you've got to stop. He loves you, please, with tears. You know, this is with tears. Please. You're, you're sinning against Jesus. You're bringing a bad name to our faith. Stop. And at some point in time, the whole church, if they won't listen together, the membership of the church, if they're a member of the church, they have to be a member of the church to really do this. Together we say, this is what he's doing, and this is what the Bible says. And together the church, the community, not the individual, not just the elders, but the church together say, yeah, we all agree. Bobby Joe, you've got to stop. What you're doing is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we don't, the only thing we really can do at that point in time is we say this thing, communion, is our outward symbol that we're Christians together. We take this cup together, right? We're going to do that in a few minutes. We'll take it together. We say, we're sorry. 
you're acting like a non-Christian, so we need to treat you like a non-Christian. So please don't take of the cup. And our aim with you, the tenor of our relationship changes, and now the only thing we're going to talk to you about is the gospel and your repentance and how much we love you. We're not going to play tennis. We're not just going to hang out. We're not going to TiVo the football game. We're going to love you, and I will sit with you. I will meet with you every day. We will meet with you every day. We'll have you over for dinner every day to continue to tell you the gospel. What we can't do is treat you like you're a Christian brother right now. We'll do everything it takes to continue to tell you the truth. Now, the beautiful thing about this, and in this case, what happened? When the church says, we love you, please stop. He woke up, right? What did he say? If I can find my So I beg you to reaffirm your love to him. Oh, yeah. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Rather, turn and forgive and comfort him. Rather, turn and forgive and comfort him. So it doesn't say, when Bobby Joe says, you're totally right. I need help. I need you to help me. I need Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm running from Jesus. I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm going to turn to his gospel. I'm going to turn to his grace. I'm going to turn to his mercy. You know what we say to him? Welcome home. Right? It's, it's just like the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son ruins his life, takes his dad's inheritance. It's a wonderful story. We don't even have time to unpack the whole thing. It's so complicated. But nonetheless, totally wrecks his life, totally ruins his life, and he starts coming home, and the dad sees him on the, the horizon, and Jesus is so clear on this, in this parable that he doesn't have a time to, as my child's storybook Bible says, to give him my, my sorry speech. Right? He doesn't have that chance to say, well, Dad, I'm really sorry, and just make me your servant. And this whole thing he planned in his head, his dad just comes out and hugs him and loves him and clothes him and parties. So if we experience something like this in this, that, in this community, we don't say, okay, well, you know, you can have the seat in the very back. Right? You can sit on one of the tables in the back. We say, let us celebrate. Let us rejoice. Let us praise the Lord. And the thing about this is Paul will say this in uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 20. He'll say there's people he's done this with, and he actually uses such strong language there. He says, I've handed them over to Satan. And, and we can't say you're a Christian or you're not a Christian in the eternal sense. That's up to the Lord. But what we can say is right now we're seeing evidence in your life that makes it to where we can't affirm our, our familial Christian thing together here. We can't affirm you as a brother or sister in Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's up to the Lord. But when Paul uses this language, he says, I handed them over to Satan. We are in the dominion of light. We are in the kingdom of God together as the people of God. It's now. It's not yet. It's coming. But outside of the church, it's the dominion of darkness. And so he's saying, I'm going to treat that person like they belong to the dominion of darkness. Why? So they may not blaspheme. I'm going to take it so seriously that hopefully they wake up and say, I'm sorry. Mostly, first and foremost, not to Paul or not to a church, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very serious stuff, but this is really, this is again why, I'm, why this orthodoxy and orthopraxy, the, the practice has to be rooted in the gospel. Because if it's just people walking around policing everyone's behavior and being the heart police and saying, I don't think you're doing this part of your Christian. And again, we're not talking about normal, normal sanctification. We're talking about obvious stuff like Bobby Joe stealing the grocery budget to gamble type stuff, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about that kind of stuff. That's when a church intervenes, right? Not just like, man, that guy's always so short. He's so grumpy. He's the grumpiest guy in the church. What? And I have to like not look at anybody because I'm not thinking of anybody as the grumpiest guy I don't know who gets, I probably get the award for grumpy. Eric Stark raised his hand. He thinks he's the grumpiest guy in the church, right? 
No one's going to discipline Eric for being grumpy. That's normal stuff, but God's working on in a person, right? I'm only going to pick on him because he raised my hand. I go out of my way not to pick on anybody, but he did raise his hand, so there you go, right? That's normal sanctification stuff. That's stuff God's working on all of us in. We're talking about big stuff, like dating your stepmom, big stuff. That's big. When it's something, it's something that people outside the church think is bad news, you know you've stepped into the zone. When non-Christians are like, whoa, what are you guys doing? That's weird. Unless it's Christian stuff. <laughs> Unless it's godly stuff. But anyways, I digress. Um, for this is why I wrote that I might test you. And that word really means like testing of the faith. You, and know whether you are obedient in everything. I wrote you the truth because I knew you'd, knew you'd know what to do. Any, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. So what's he clear on? This guy's back, back on the team, right? He's back in, and he's good with him, and you're good with him, and we're all good here. Uh, indeed, what I have forgiven. If I have, have forgiven anything, has, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now listen, this is important. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan, right? This is serious stuff. Sinning against God is kind of walking in line in the league with Satan rather than with Jesus, right? Dominion of darkness, dominion of light. Now, we're Christians. You're a Christian. You've taken off the, the old man. You've put on the new. If you're a Christian, you're loved, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, and that's our power to repent, right? We remember how loved and how accepted and how cleansed and how forgiven you are so we don't turn from our sin and turn to Jesus so that he will love us. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus because he has loved us. The gospel is not us earning God's love, but us living in the reality of God's love poured out on us through the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus. Now, he brings in this idea of the, the schemes of Satan here. Now, we live in a city that is hyper-spiritual. I am uh, relieved or overjoyed are absolutely the wrong words. But when I meet someone who's an actual atheist, I, I, I am always fascinated and so excited to talk to them about Jesus because I don't actually meet any atheists in Seattle, right? They're not just a, a laboratory experiment. I want them to love Jesus, right? Like, there's, ooh, cool, an atheist, right? So the words are all wrong, but they're there. But they're very rare. You know, I, I got to hang out with the, uh, the president of the UW Secular Student Union a few years ago, right? A tried and true atheist who's part of the Atheist Club at UW, right? And we're just hanging out, talking about Jesus, right? Because that's what you do. Very, very uh, friendly guy. <laughs> you know, we had a really good talk. Thought I was an idiot, but life goes on, right? <laughs> what else do you expect? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, but we live in a city that loves the idea of spirituality and spiritual forces. Uh, and we tend to think that every spiritual thing is good. Um, this is interesting because not everything in the physical world is good. Uh, but that's moral relativism for you. As Christians, we believe there's good and evil, malevolent and holy spiritual forces in the universe. Satan happens to be the head of the evil uh, spiritual forces. And honestly, we kind of imagine, I think, because of movies and CGI, sort of the fantastic end of that reality when I think in reality things are far more subtle. And it's actually to his advantage. Because if Satan appears or demonic forces show some fireworks or whatever, then people say, oh, this stuff's real. Oh, man. Right? When they're not doing that, it's just kind of in the background music. But he's warning them to watch out for Satan's schemes here because Satan hates churches and wants them to go away. So what is the scheme then in this, in this deal? Well, he talked about two things. When he talked about confronting people in the truth, 
and then also showing that grace and mercy to that person, right? So one scheme is that you get all truth with no kindness and no love, and all you just have is a noisy gong, as he'll say in 1 Corinthians 13, right? The, you, can, you, can, you can recite the gospel, but it doesn't affect and melt your heart so that when you deal with someone who's walking in their own problems, that you don't come with them just with love and mercy and joy, right? That you don't come in that kindness. I think the other thing he's really focusing on here, though, because it comes in the, if you follow the paragraph, is it comes right after he said, make sure you reaffirm your love for him. Because just as much as, as we can cling to the truth with no grace, which is actually, again, a caricature. I, I, maybe it's my own sheltered Seattle upbringing. I don't know a lot of people who are all truth and no grace. I, I, I know they're out there. I, I know I've, I've talked with many of you who have that background of kind of in more, you know, for lack of a better word, and I think it's probably wrong, but kind of more fundamentalist background. Really. Well, there were, just, there were people there who were unkind, and, and they said they loved Jesus, but they weren't kind, and it was all spiritual push-ups and working hard. Well, honestly, the praxis there isn't rooted to the, the orthodoxy, right? The ortho, you know, and it doesn't work. But Paul has in mind here, I think, this, that they hold a grudge, because that denies the gospel just as hard. So he was in sin, and so when he becomes the guy who wears the dunce cap for the rest of his life in the church, they're not believing the gospel. When he has walked in this thing that even the pagans shudder about, and he said he's sorry and he's been restored, he's restored. They don't hold it against him. And, and if you do that, it's a trick. It's a satanic trick. Because if you have this church where you have certain levels, these are the holy Christians, and that's the guy who used to be messed up, but now he's a Christian, so we don't want to let him be in church leadership, but we will make a little video about him and have everybody see him and how messed up he was and how not messed up he is now. Yay, the video, the messed up guy. Woo! Right? But, we, but he was really messed up. We don't want him to, like, do anything. Like, just make the videos, right? That's your job. Now. Make videos and tell everybody how messed up you are and how you're not messed up anymore, right? The reality is we're all messed up and Jesus saved all of us, right? Uh, likewise, if you said to this guy, you didn't show him that grace and you didn't affirm, they didn't affirm their love for him and didn't welcome him back in with open arms. They've fallen into Satan's schemes because they don't believe the power of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't believe Jesus when he says in Luke 15 that the woman who's looking around her house for the coin she lost, which seems like sort of an absurd story because like, I don't look around for quarters in my house, but she's looking around for the money. She finds it. She celebrates. Yay, she sweeps her house. She finds it. And he says, that's what it's like for the angels in heaven when one sinner repents. That, that we're denying the, the deep abiding truth of the gospel if, if we don't welcome someone in who's been walking in sin and celebrate their return. I said, no, you wear the dunce cap. You sit in the back. You don't, you know, you're, not, you're never going to really be part of this thing again. And we've denied the gospel. We've denied that grace, and it's a scheme. I, I think there's three things Paul's after here. One, Paul's after the truth. His aim is the truth. We, we walk in the truth. We hold fast to the gospel, and it counts. We're not going to sell out the fact that Jesus saves sinners from death to life. And when we say something, well, you know, society doesn't like that sin anymore, so we're not really going to be into that sin. We're going we're gonna to kind of, you know, to marginalize that sin. We're not, no, 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 no. Blasphemy, that's not a big deal or whatever. We'll just, you know, that was kind of for people in the 1800s or 2,000 years ago or whatever. And we kind of denied the truth. In so doing, we denied the truth. We hold to the truth. But Paul's aim is also grace. Don't let them be overwhelmed with sadness. Welcome them back into the family. Get them back in. Go get them and get them back. Do whatever it takes for them to be back in God's good graces. 
His aim is grace and his aim is truth. And they go together and they can't be separated. Because if you're not sharing the truth with people, you're not being gracious to them in any way, shape, or form. And without the truth, you don't even know what grace actually is. The grace that we have is the grace that we're extended by God who came to serve. And not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And finally, Paul's aim is restoration. The whole point of the whole thing, the whole point of 1 Corinthians, the whole point is, is restoration and for things to be restored. And this shouldn't be a surprise for us because this is what the gospel does. This is a little tiny picture of what the gospel does. Go with me. This is skipping ahead a little bit in uh, 2 Corinthians. So go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. It says this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So we don't look at you and say, this is who you used to be and this is who you still kind of are. Or, or this is what your outward appearance uh, uh, presupposes. Uh, or, or, or judging people from the way they look or the way they, or they, the way they talk. Or, or by, and I don't mean a sin, non-sin, but by the way they act. If it's, you know, not how Seattleites act. You know, not saying hello and frowning at people all the time. If someone's not frowning and not saying hello to people, you know, you don't have to judge them. In fact, you might want to learn from them a little bit if you're a true blue Seattleite. Anyways. <laughs> Excuse me. It was a little too close to home for a couple of people. Sorry. Uh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is who you are now. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You and I were enemies of God, and we've been reconciled to God. We've been made right. You're fully right with You're a Christian. You are fully right with God now. No matter, no matter what. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's putting the world back the way it's supposed to be. He's calling sinners to salvation, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. We are people who understand that Jesus, righteous, perfect, took Andrew's sin on himself and put his righteousness on me. And if you're a Christian, on you. And so in response to this, we're ministers of reconciliation. First and foremost, to people who don't know Jesus. We share the gospel. We carry the message of Jesus to people who don't know Jesus so they might know Jesus and love Jesus. That's reconciliation. And within the church, that's our aim. The way our aim for any conflict that, that we're having or, or helping anybody walk in anything is reconciliation. That is our aim. But that is in response to who we are and is even just a kind of a taste of what Jesus has done. So if you don't know Jesus, this is the truth of the gospel. Be reconciled to him. God saves sinners from death to life, not because of anything they have done, but everything he has done, as Paul just outlaid for, outlined for us in 1 Corinthians 5. And if you're a Christian, you know, I don't know what's going on in your life unless you share it with me. You know, I, I, I don't know what, what last week looked like. Where are the places where we're running to sin instead of Jesus? Turn from those and run because you're loved. You're free. The Spirit will empower you. You have a new heart. You're a new being. And, and, and if you've taken the speck out of your eye, 
Now, what I'm not saying, just to be clear, is I'm not saying look around and pick some sins from some people in the church and get after them. But if you, if you know you got somebody and you know there's that thing you just don't want to talk to them about, because it's lame, and it's hard, and it's the worst coffee ever, and your cappuccino's going to get cold, and you're not going to drink it, and you're not going to have sleep that night, and your stomach hurts, all of those things. Well, first of all, the stomach hurting and not sleeping are actually good because it shows you actually care and you're not cold and you're not doing it just to do it. But you got somebody you know that you need to talk to. Talk to them about it. And when you do it, tell them how much you love them. And show them how much you love them by being very kind and very gracious and showing them exactly what you're talking about. Not just a vague feeling, like you're grumpy. But it says right here this, and you're doing this, and I love you. And this is uncomfortable. And I didn't sleep last night. And I'm going to cry. It's okay to cry when you're having that meeting, by the way. With tears. Please don't. Okay. But it's good work to do because you love them. Let's pray. Jesus, you've loved us. You've saved us. You've exposed to us our own shortcomings. You've exposed to us our own sin. You've exposed to us our own wrong beliefs. You've exposed to us so much so that we turn from that and we would turn to you. You've exposed to us our sins so that we'd be free from it. You've exposed to us our selfishness so we could be other-centered. You've exposed to us our idolatry so we could worship you. You've exposed to us these things, uh, not so that we could sit in them or dwell in them or, or feel bad about them, uh, but so that we could be free of them. We're not just sinners. We're saints. We're saved by grace. And if we've turned from our sin and turned from you, we've, we've been washed clean. And so help us not only to do the thing uh, to other people who have turned from their sin and turned to you, but help us also to embrace ourselves similarly. Sometimes we don't feel forgiven, but the reality is it's not about our feelings. It's about your pronouncement and your cross. Let us remember that it's not our job to forgive ourselves, but to believe your gospel and be forgiven by you. Jesus, help us as we turn to you and as we, we turn to communion, as we turn to song, to turn from our sin and turn to you and live in the freedom and the grace and the mercy of your gospel and celebrating you, celebrating what you've done and celebrating the liberation you've given us. Jesus, we love you and we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen.